She was an actress, dancer, and a poet. She was graced with a rare and resonant vocal instrument that comes on the scene once every 50 years. Shortly after her death, a journalist wrote an article about her celebrating her life and her achievements. But it was these words about her that riveted me. Above all, she was a storyteller. This was the journalist's capstone description of the late Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou was a masterful storyteller. In her telling memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, she poured the content of her remembrances into the form and shape of a powerful, memorable, and eloquent story. She understood stories' mysterious power to penetrate the hearts and minds of people. She understood that naked truth dressed up in plot, character, setting, and dialogue has the ability to walk through the protective walls of a person's inner world and shape them, teach them, sustain them, inspire them, put survival strength in them, and give birth to hope and dreams within them. This insight is old as Nathan the prophet. When charged by YHWH to confront King David about his sins of sexual abuse and murder, Nathan does not confront the king directly. Instead, he told David a story, a story that penetrated David's heart before his defenses could go up. Wisely, Nathan allowed the story to do its work before he directly confronted David and declared to him, you are the man. Through this means, David is confronted, corrected, brought to confession, and is forgiven. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7 is a great example of the redemptive power of story. At this point, it may be wise for me to clarify what I mean by story. A story is not merely a recounting of events in temporal sequence. For example, the king died and then the queen died is a recounting of an event, but it is not a story. The king died and then the king died, uh, the king died and then the queen died of grief is a story because the time sequence is preserved and the causal link between the clauses gives the chronological sequence a plot. All stories have plot, but the plot shape will vary from story to story and will not necessarily involve the resolution of tension. 
The book of Jonah is a case in point. The book ends without the tension being resolved. Still, irrespective of a story's compositional patterns, plot understood as the meaningful and causal sequence of events is a defining feature of all stories. Story is powerful, and it is naive to disparage and downplay story as a force for good or evil. In fact, I have the distinct impression that God has wired people for story. Story has mystique and drawing power that touches people at profound psychological, emotional, imaginative, and spiritual places. Several years ago, I was one of the speakers at a pastor's conference on the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean. We had just finished lunch. It was hot. Frankly, I felt like taking a good afternoon nap, but we had another session, and I dreaded the fact that I would be subjected to a sermon right after lunch in the sweltering heat. There was no air conditioning in the room in the room where we were meeting. The courageous preacher started and droned on for what seemed like an eternity. I fought with all of my might to keep drowsiness and sleep at bay. Then the sermon went into cardiac arrest and flatlined. <laughs> we tried to shock the sermon back to life with a defibrillator of amen. <laughs> Say it, brother, and preach it. To no avail. <laughs> the only course of action left was to call it, pronounce the sermon dead, and issue a homiletical death certificate. Then all of a sudden, there was a sermonic heartbeat. The preacher started telling a story, and to my utter surprise and amazement, my drowsiness lifted like fog. It seems as if the sun came out. The homiletical sky was blue. As a teacher of preachers, I had a big question. What happened? What is it about story that has the kind of power to impact me at the level of my biochemistry, causing my drowsiness to dissipate? I believe that God has wired us for story. Since the dawn of human history, story has been the primary means of shaping upcoming generations' internalized principles and values. <clears throat> distinguish heroes from heroines, uh, distinguish heroes and heroines from villains and culprits, cultivate sentiments of satisfaction when good wins, and sentiments of disgust when evil seems to triumph. Story was the primary means of passing on to the next generation ideological, theological, and cultural legacies. As I reflect on my own life, 
it was when my mother told me biblical stories that the fear of God was inculcated in me. And this internal shaping continued as we sat in a circle around our Sunday school teacher who told us the old, old story of Jesus and his love. But there was another storytelling medium that shaped my life, the comic books. During the middle of the 60s, I devoured the DC and Marvel comic books. My reading of the stories of the Avengers, the Black Panther, the Fantastic Four, the Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, Superman, and Wonder Woman reinforced the values of right and wrong that I learned at home before I knew anything about the molding power of story, the comic book tales with the pictures, the dialogue, and scenes demarcated with boxes shaped the contours of my cognitive and effective worldview and deeply impacted my imagination before I had the academic competencies to realize what was happening. Today, story is the driving and shaping force of the world in an unprecedented manner. 21st century was born in the throes of an information technology explosion. 24-hour news cycles, the emergence of social media platforms, and through the technological means at our disposal today, we receive stories from every corner of the globe and with the click, send stories to the remotest part of the earth, shaping opinions, making some people uh, glad and others mad, fueling revolutions and toppling governments. Indeed, technology facilitates the telling of stories. Stories that in all likelihood a good number of people would not have heard in the preceding generations of human history. For example... I read uh, in the February 26, 2018 edition of Time Magazine a short piece entitled um, A Hashtag Me Too Movement for Muslim Women. The journalist writes, using the hashtag uh, Mosque Me Too, Muslim women have begun to speak up online about sexual abuse experienced while on the Hajj the annual Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca, and in other religious spaces like mosque. Um, uh, the Spark, an unidentified palace, a Pakistani woman, took to Facebook in February to write about the repeated sexual harassment she encountered while on the Hajj in Mecca. A mandatory religious obligation for Muslims, the Hajj is a five-day pilgrimage undertaken by about two million Muslims each year. The woman subsequently deleted her post, but it encouraged women across the world to share their own stories on social media platforms. Even some women who live behind veils and burqas 
are able to tell their stories on social media platforms. All of these women across the world have stories. <clears throat> Having a story <clears throat> is a part of what it means to be a human being. To be human is to have a story. The unprecedented explosion of the consumption of story through mass media and global communications has arrived. Robert McKee observes, the world now consumes films, novels, theater, and television, and television in such quantities and with such ravenous hunger that the story arts have become humanity's prime source of inspiration as it seeks to order chaos and gain insight into life, which is interesting to me. That, that it's just not an end in itself, it's just not merely entertainment. Our appetite for story is a reflection of the profound human need to grasp the patterns of living, not merely as an intellectual exercise, but within a very personal, emotional experience. Story isn't a flight from reality, but a vehicle that carries us on our search for reality, our best effort to make sense out of the anarchy of existence. We live in a time when story is the dominant cultural force in the world. And the art of film is the dominant medium of this grand enterprise. Think how directors told a new generation of true stories of World War II in the film's Dunkirk, The Darkest Hour. Think about the encouragement given to master teachers not to lose hope when one of their students of promise turns to evil in The Last Jedi. The most, uh, one of the more recent Marvel releases, The Black Panther, addresses a number of current issues such as response to oppression, the redress of the mistakes and missteps of past generations, the strength, courage, and intellectual and technological competence of women without the abolition of womanhood and the feminine mystique, and not merely the plot of overcoming the monster, but the jarring plot of overcoming the monster of our own creation. Obviously, then, the most influential people in our world are not the philosophers, the theologians, and the politicians. The most influential people are the novelists, the playwrights, screenwriters. They take ideas and philosophies and pour their ideological and theological content into the artistic form of story and drama with the aim of impacting and shaping the world. 
someone said that the philosophers interpreted the world and communists want to change the world. But I'm going to argue that this has always been the aim of storytellers to not only to interpret life, but to change it through impacting people. In the form of story through the medium of film, these ideas penetrate the minds and hearts of people as they emotionally identify with characters, sympathize with a point of view, cry, get angry, take courage, without realizing it, leave the 3D IMAX experience changed for the better or for the worse. Power of story. As an aside, I remember when I was a little boy, our sixth grade teacher took us to see The Sound of Music, Julie Andrews. I think I had a crush on her as a little boy. And I remember when they, they put one of the cones in the seat and she sat on it and jumped up and she talked about how thankful and kind she was for the warm welcome that was extended to her in a jest of irony. And I remember for the first time as a sixth grader crying in the theater because that scene resonated, did something to me, awoken another element of my humanity as a person created in the image of God. Power of story. <laughs> Strange. I never talked to my parents about that experience. But this is going on with, with story in the lives of people all the time. So while story is the dominant cultural force in our world today, it is interesting to note that story is the normative genre in biblical revelation. In fact, 40, and two, when, I, when I say story, I don't mean fiction. It's true. It's true. Historical narratives are true. The gospels are true. In fact, 40% of the Old Testament and a significant part of the New Testament is story slash historical narrative. The triune God himself has chosen narrative story as his prominent, predominant mode of self-revelation for the communication of his mind in the Old Testament and a significant part of the New Testament. In our English Bible, the longest block of narrative in the Old Testament runs from Genesis to Esther. Among the minor prophets, the book of Jonah is, is a narrative slash story. Of course, we have the gospel narratives of the New Testament and the book of Acts. I define historical narrative slash story in the following manner. Historical narrative is an account of sober history. And let me add quickly, when I say sober history, I don't mean sober history in the way we use it in the 21st century sense. 21st 
21st century historical configurations that are ruling out God, they're ruling out the supernatural. Uh, we're not talking about history in that sense. I'm understanding history in, the, in, in, in that God himself has intervened in history. That this is his creation, that he's sustaining the universe. The historical narrative is a sober account of history from the Lord's point of view, related and relived in the form of story for the purpose of life transformation. The narrator accounts the history from God's point of view. Since the Lord is the ultimate author of the account, the narrator's perspective and point of view is in fact the perspective of the Lord himself. Biblical narrators are incredible storytellers. Their recounting is beautiful, skilled, structured. They narrate with conscious artistry. For example, it is hard to overestimate the incredible literary skill and subtlety of the narrator slash storytellers of First and Second Samuel. The narrator's skill in the use of irony, humor, flashback, and dramatic tension and resolution uh, is, is absolutely astounding. These historical accounts must be read and interpreted as story, story that appeals to our imagination, invites our imaginative participation in the events themselves, and helps us see how our own story by the redeeming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ fits into the big story of redemption. In his commentary on first and second, Samuel Eugene Peterson adds his voice in the recognition of the quality of biblical stories. Um, there is an austere, spare quality in their stories. They don't tell us much. They leave a lot of blanks in the narrative, an implicit invitation to enter the story themselves. Let me read that again. They leave a lot of blanks in the narrative, an implicit invitation to enter the story ourselves, just as we are, and find how we fit in. These are stories, note this, that respect our freedom. They don't try to manipulate us. They don't force us. They show us the spacious world in which God creates, saves, and blesses, first through our imagination and then through our faith. Imagination and faith are close kin here. They offer us a place in the story invite us into this large story that takes place under the broad skies of God's purpose in contrast to the gossipy anecdotes that we cook up in the stuffy closet of self. The narrator of Scripture's large story the meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is God himself. Due to this great reality, the narrative accounts of the scriptures are not content to make a claim to truth and stop there. With nuanced insight in his outstanding book, Mimesis, Eric Auerbach noted the world of the scripture stories is not satisfied with claiming 
to be historically true reality. It insists that it is the only real world. All other scenes, issues, and ordinances have to have no right to appear independently of it, and it is promised that all of them, the history of mankind, will be given their due place within its frame and be subordinated to it. Note this. The scripture stories do not court our favor. They do not flatter us that they may please us and enchant us. They seek to subject us, and if we refuse to be subjected, we are rebels. The scriptures say no. The scripture stories say no to our sin. They subvert our sinful thinking and ways. But they do point us to the one who can meet the needs of the human heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. The great narrative accounts of the gospel point to Jesus who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. The Bible is the Lord's story, and through the death of Jesus on the cross and his literal bodily resurrection from among the dead, we by faith in him have a place in a great drama of redemption and through the preaching of the Old and New Testament narratives, we have the opportunity to invite others into the big story of redemption. Moreover, the meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is the framework in which all of life is to be understood and interpreted. In Scripture, God himself is the storyteller par excellence. As storyteller, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit employ irony, humor, uh, wordplay, alliteration, assonance, character development, tension and resolution, and the strategic giving and withholding of information. He shapes us and leads us into deeper fellowship with himself through incredible narration. But at a time when the world is feeling the seismic global impact of story for good or for evil, I note that the evangelical Bible-believing pulpit still continues to be, to some extent, in many circles, the medium of an exclusively Aristotelian approach to preaching. Abstract, cognitive, Emotionless, detached, devoid of tension and resolution, and often dull. The situation is ironic in light of the reality that story historical narrative is the known of genre and one of the dominant theological forces of scripture. It seems to me that since God has chosen to communicate with us through story, Clothing, biblical theology, and plot, dialogue, setting, irony, human, people, and other artistic means, we need to understand this genre and certainly ought to cultivate our skills in clothing, theology, and story, doing more preaching from the narrative sections of Scripture. Um, some 
evangelical homiletics professors are attempting to address the problem and prepare the upcoming generation of gospel preachers to communicate to a world steeped in story. Many evangelical seminaries and Bible colleges today have course offerings in preaching the Old Testament narratives, uh, the narrative sections of the gospel accounts, and the book of Acts. More attention is given to preaching the Bible's various genres and the presentation dynamics those genres demand. It is an issue of faithfulness to the text, content, and rhetorical strategy in the sermon and not simply technique. More millennials and Generation Z preachers are emerging from the halls of evangelical training institutions equipped with the hermeneutical, homiletical, and presentation skills necessary to, to do justice to scripture's stories and pulpit discourse. By the way, I am not implying in the least that our resurgence of interest in story is a capitulation to culture. Instead, I maintain that God has providentially prepared the church for such a time as this by giving us so many stories in the Bible. Therefore, we need to continue to help students and preachers and those who are already involved in pastoral ministry in one way, shape, form, or fashion to learn how to incorporate his approach to God's approach to storytelling and messages based on these stories. Are there any preaching models better than God himself? Are there any preaching models better than Jesus himself? Are there any preaching models better than the Spirit of God? I remember someone, someone, someone gave me some very, very interesting, polite pushback about this whole idea of telling stories and said to me, don't you think that only thing that really matters is content? And yet, wait a minute, wait, wait, no, yes, yes, content matters, content matters, but I want to preach the content the way Jesus preached it. I want to preach the content the way God preached it. I want to preach the content the way the Holy Spirit preached it. In other words, I do not want to separate the Spirit of God's what from the Spirit of God's how. Are there any preaching models better than God? So God ultimately is the model for the preacher. Hmm. I think it would be appropriate for you to say amen. <laughs> oh. oh my. So I am encouraged because I know that the Lord has already raised up a new generation of biblical preachers to proclaim the gospel. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Dr. Reed, your son's incredible storytellers. I still remember Michael's sermon on Joseph. I still remember it. On Jen Joseph, the Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Powerful example of storytelling. I still remember the sermon. 
Because what happens is stories that are lived and related well will take up residence and live long in a person's life. See, if we have narrated and relived these stories well, long after we are gone, our children and grandchildren will still hold in memory those powerfully preached stories with all of their redemptive and life-transforming implications, they will still hold these stories in memory. And so God is raising up a new generation of biblical preachers to proclaim the gospel. But we must equip student preachers and those who are involved in ministry to become better storytellers as an integral part of gospel proclamation. We must strongly encourage them to avoid the great evangelical preaching temptation and knowing communicative insecurity. The felt need to rush to a proposition before we have allowed the story to do its work. Now, we're not saying we don't preach propositions. We are saying that there is a place and time for it, especially with narratives. Allow the narrative to do its work first. Nathan, Justin, come to King David and tell him you are the man. No, he allowed, you notice, he allowed the story to do the work. And when he saw that David was angry, ticked off, thinking that the story was about somebody else, thinking that the story was about somebody else, it penetrates him because at heart he's a shepherd boy and he resonated with that man who had been taken advantage of and at that point, the proposition comes, you are the man. So we must strongly encourage preachers to avoid the great evangelical preaching temptation and knowing communicative insecurity, the felt need to rush to a proposition before we've allowed the story to do its work. We have made good progress but much more needs to be done. Eternity is at stake. I bring these thoughts to a close with some insightful words from the late Haddon Robinson. We have become a storied culture. Whether it's mystery drama, a comedy, or even a sports event, there is a large element of induction. A large element of induction. Rabbit trail for a moment, but connected with this. Sometimes... There, in, in the United States, they have these judge programs on about paternity, who's the father. I have no interest in this stuff. But every now and then, I walk 
past the television set and the judge says, in the case of John Doe, it has been determined by this court that Mr. Jones, you are, then they go to commercial break. See, this is induction. And you know what happens? Even though I have no interest in this at all, I think it's a waste of time, I've been hooked. <laughs> I'm hooked now. I'm hooked. So I, I hang around the TV set. Oh, that's by design. They set it up this way. Oh, these folk know that we're wired for story, that we're wired for induction. And if you're going to capture a person's attention and maintain their interest, inject a little bit of tension into their imagination, and you got them. So I'm hanging around. Then they come back. In the case of John Doe, it has been determined by this court that Mr. Jones, you are, dramatic pause, the father. I told you you were the father and all this, all this stuff, you know, all this stuff breaks out. So all that stuff. It's like, wait, and I'm, I'm, yeah, you see, it's a large measure of induction. Why do you think people get into binge TV watching with the Netflix phenomenon. Oh, if you're not careful in this, you can watch that all night. Large elements of induction. The drama isn't solved until the end of the last act. The joke leads up to the punchline. The sports event moves toward the final score. Inductive sermons fit that way of thinking, and the Bible is full of them. That is particularly true of a specific type of, induct of inductive sermon, a story told. You connect with 21st century listeners when you tell a biblical story with insight and imagination. The low marks we have given the story must be revived upward if we observe the impact stories make upon all of us. Television abounds with them. Social media. Some shoddy, some shady, some shaky, some worthwhile. But TV dramas and other dramas attract audiences, note this, and shape their values. And I need you to listen to this now. The future of our culture may depend on the future of our culture may depend on the stories that capture the imagination and mind of this generation and his children. Thank you. Questions?